live in a rural community, you may not actually have access to a doctor. How can nurses and nurse practitioners play a role in supporting Lyme patients? What skill set do nurses possess that are unique in patient care? What role can nurses play in educating patients, family, and friends? Nurse practitioner Dr. Ginger Savely became an expert in Lyme and co-infections through her own family experience. Over the years, she developed her expertise and loves to teach others. She has even published several articles about Lyme and co-infections in nursing journals. She practices in Washington, D.C. and joins us from her home. Welcome to our podcast, Dr. Savely. How did you become involved in working with patients with Lyme disease and other tick-borne illnesses? Hi. Um, Yes, well, thank you for having me on today. I always like to talk about this topic. I first got involved because my daughter, who was at the time 16, became very, very ill with Lyme disease, and I was a nurse practitioner, and so, of course, I wanted to learn everything about it I could, and we were in Texas, where you could not find any doctor to believe that a person could have Lyme in that state, and so it it was a difficult uh, diagnosis, as so often is the case. Um, So after going through that whole thing and learning so much through her, I just, um, you know, one step led to another. Then actually, I ended up getting very sick with it, too. And I was basically in bed for a year. So naturally, I, I, I would say that most of the people I know who specialize in treating Lyme and co-infections have the personal experience, you know, themselves, their spouse, their children, something like that, that usually gets us involved in it. I can definitely relate to that. Actually, one of our first podcasts, I interviewed my father, who's a retired pediatrician. And, Uh you know, it was hard for him to learn about this by watching his daughter get really sick, too. So, and also having all that medical knowledge and that frustration of not knowing any of that, you know, beforehand. (laughs) Right, right. Exactly. I know. It's just a whole new new world. And it's, it's very difficult even, you know, for infectious disease doctors to really understand these infections because they're very different than most of the ones that they've been treating. And so they, and most are just not, I don't know if they're not interested or what, but they just don't take the time to really learn all the details about this. Yeah. So I mentioned my father's a retired pediatrician and, you know, he always spoke really highly. I mean, my sister and I used to go to the nursery with him and we just wanted to grow up to be pediatric nurses. That was like our dream when we were kids. Um, but he, my dad always spoke so highly about the nurses that he worked with and just like that really important role that nurses are as usually the first contact in the medical system. So what skill set do nurses and nurse practitioners possess that are really are unique in patient care? Well, as a matter of fact, I've published several articles on this exact topic uh, in various nurse and nurse practitioner magazines um, and journals. And, you know, one thing that I always stress is that usually the nurses, first of all, are spending more time with the patient, whether it be the child or adult. And so they're able to pick up maybe on some more subtle cues that the doctor may not, because the doctor kind of has, you know, they have so many patients, they have to fit in per day, and they don't usually have a lot of time. So I feel like there's that little luxury of more time sometimes that the nurses have to 
notice. And, and as one of my articles I wrote, I said, you know, nurses can learn to pick up the red flags. In other words, to notice little things that uh, particular, maybe even about the person's history that the doctor might not have had time to go into in detail. You know, people sometimes feel a little more comfortable, I've noticed, talking to nurses. And so they might even share some bit of information that's really important. Uh, You know, like, hey, you know, I just came back from camping in Nantucket or something like that, which is which is very important information, uh, you know, when, when you're diagnosing this, because as we all know, the tests are so unreliable that the, the history is, is a huge part of making the diagnosis. I would think, too, even uh, in addition, you know, communities that have traditionally been marginalized by the healthcare system might also be more receptive to working with nurses and nurse practitioners. Yes, that's so true, too. And, uh, you know, as uh, you had mentioned to me uh, in Canada and I know in the United States, I don't know how many other countries, but uh, many places, nurse practitioners are the first line. You know, they're the they're the people that uh, are seen first, because a lot of times in very rural areas, they're not attracting the doctors to go there. So the nurse practitioners do. And I think that what I've noticed is that a lot of nurses and nurse practitioners contact me because they're very curious about the things they're seeing. And I always feel like, you know, if you can get a nurse to understand and and pick up on the red flags for these diseases, nurses can then, you know, talk to the doctors and educate them and point things out to them. Because I many times it's, it's a nurse that ends up making the diagnosis because of the fact that they are just, I don't know, paying it. They pay attention to different kinds of things, very, very subtle things. And so I feel like, yeah, the nurses and the nurse practitioners, certainly that this is our role. I mean, I've written a lot of talks and, and I've, I've spoken at places and wrote, written articles on how nurse practitioners, this is basically our perfect area of expertise because it's involved when you when you treat Lyme and co-infections. It's as much an art as a science. You know, it's it's um, it's something that you can't just go by by a book. You know, you you learn through doing, and so much of it is the relationship that you have with the patient and how much faith they have in you and that sort of thing. So I've always felt like this, you know, nurse practitioners were were perfect for working in this field. Yeah, I like that you mentioned, too, about how nurses and nurse practitioners play such an important role in rural communities because often there aren't doctors in those areas. Or, you know, somebody might have to wait right. weeks or, I mean, now telehealth is more available than it was before. But often it is the nurse right. and nurse practitioner that see those patients first. Exactly. And, you know... Very often, it's very subtle to pick up these things. You might even have somebody come in and say they just all of a sudden started having bad headaches and they've never been a person that had headaches. Or they all of a sudden just have this awful insomnia and they've never had that before. And, you know, it's so it really takes some creativity to 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 think about what possible infections could be related to that symptom. And usually I have to say the average doctor doesn't start thinking about 
chronic infections when they hear of those symptoms. Now, again, I'm the first to admit I've been accused uh, of the old, uh, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So I'm sure that's true of me because I've been doing this so long that I do tend to see symptoms in terms of their relationship to possible tick-borne disease. You know, but uh, it's still, it's always important that that be in the differential because it's very often left out of the differential. And so it's not one of the considerations. Yeah, I keep hearing that over and over again, how important it is to not rule it out and keep it on the differential diagnosis. The other thing too, you know, it's that, but also it's so important to not rule it out due to a negative test. And that that's the unfortunate thing I see happening. Um, I do more and more see doctors thinking of it, which is great, great, you know, having it on their radar and, and they test for it, but then not understanding the unreliability of the test, they place everything on the test result. And so if it's negative, they say, okay, well, let's, that we can mark that off. You, we don't have to worry about that anymore. You don't have it. And so that's a very, I, I think is interesting in um, the state of Virginia and the United States, they, they actually pass some sort of legislation that doctors, when doctors give patients their Lyme test results, they have to tell them that 50% of the great. time they're And, inactive. you know, I think the general public all of a sudden, yeah. because of COVID, actually understand that there are false positives and false negatives, which I don't think was in knowledge in mm-hmm. the general population before. I know. I agree. I think all of us, and a lot of doctors and patients too, are learning a lot because of what we're learning about COVID and it's opening people's eyes to the idea, for one, how people can react so Mm -hmm. differently to an infection where it can be a mild little nothing for one person and, you know, kill another one. So it's, it's always been very hard, I think, for most doctors to understand how variable the presentations are for Lyme disease, because they're generally tend to think, oh, you've got some joint pain, you know, and then you take two weeks of uh, doxycycline and then you're totally better and you're fine. Uh, But, you know, it's, of course, we know it's not that simple for the majority of people. So that's something I think we're starting to to learn through through COVID. You know, people are paying more attention to these differences. They could be genetic variations that are causing the different reactions. Of course, just your general immune status. Uh, it's not known exactly what it is, but it probably could be a combination. Mm-hmm. We of just interviewed factors. somebody about mast cell activation, and we're doing another intro interview about yeah. astrocytes, and we're just learning all kinds of things. <laughs> <laughs> yes, unfortunately, many of my patients with Lyme and co-infections do have uh, mast cell disease, and that, boy, that complicates everything so much. But again, see, that's a genetic uh, type tendency, and certain uh, genes can be turned on by certain bacteria or viruses. And so what happens sometime when people are predisposed to having uh, multiple chemo sensitivity or, or, you know, MCAS or they, they are, that's the Lyme infection that sort of gets it going, you know, that just turns on the gene and, and everything gets, starts getting out of control. Yeah. So you first, I was first introduced to you uh, at the ILADS conference in Boston, the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Conference. 
um, way back when we used to travel, I came to Boston for that conference. And I mean, oh my goodness, I I just learned so much. And it was so inspiring to see so many people from so many different um, professions come together to try to solve this problem. So I'm just curious, how would how do you see nurses uh, playing a role in educating patients and family and friends, whether it's prevention or even simple things like removing ticks? Well, you know, th- this is interesting because I've had this come up several times where nurses who have worked for me in the past, then they go on and they move or something and they get a job with someone else. And they become, uh, they, they write to me later and say, I've just become the local ambassador for uh, Lyme awareness because of everything that they learned through me. And so they're able to tell people uh, about ways that, that they could be at high risk for getting bites, like things like sitting on a dead log in the forest or, or, or uh, walking through tall grass, those types of things, and tell them about how to properly remove a tick and tell them about symptoms that could be related to these diseases. Because most people think of joint pain, but that's that's not, you know, the, they don't think of all the many other symptoms that could happen. So when nurses can, you know, really educate the patients a lot this way, and I think uh, nurses probably do most of the teaching when it comes to to the information about these diseases. I bet nurses are pretty good at doing tick checks as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. But it is funny how whenever I've had nurses work for me, they get so aware of this because, of course, that's all we do. <laughs> so um, they, they, they go on to – I'm so happy and proud about them because they go on then to just uh, spread the information wherever they go, you know. It seems, too, that nurses could really, you know, well, do obviously play a really important role in documentation and monitoring patient care. You know, when I look back at the stack of paperwork that I have from when I was so sick for several years, um, I just want to hand it over to a nurse and say, like, can you organize this for me? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and maybe were were you sick before everybody was doing electronic medical records, too? Oh, yeah, and I also just don't trust anyone to oh. keep it because it's important to me. And, and you know, yes. I've switched yes. several doctors. So I, I would like to have, you know, a hard copy of everything. Oh, too. yeah. My patients always come to me with this big three ring binder, you know, it's like <laughs> all of their medical history and all the lab results and everything. You can practically tell when somebody has Lyme and co-infections, they have a three ring binder. <laughs> well, I think we all maybe think that eventually one day someone's going to want to come and actually look at it and study yeah. it. <laughs> but, you know, I do, I do look through those things. I, and, but, you know, I think sometimes patients might feel like, well, gee, she's hardly paying any attention. But believe me, when when you do this all the time, you you can go through really quickly and mm-hmm. just your eye will just fall on, on the important things. So I, I just usually just go through it really quickly so I can make sure I've, you know, seen, picked up anything important. And uh, it's surprising how often, too, you go back through somebody's record and maybe five years before they actually had a positive Lyme test and nobody told them. Oh my Nobody goodness. told them. And then so they've been sick and sick and looking for answers and everything. Then you get their medical records and and you find that out. It's, it's amazing. I've had that happen a number of times. So I just want to touch briefly on co-infections. So two of the common co-infections are Babesia and Bartonella. 
How, yeah. how do they manifest in patients or have you seen them manifest in patients? So often my patients are, are, are very, very sick patients. And so they usually have what I call the three Bs, <laughs> Borrelia, which causes Lyme and Babesia and Bartonella. And that particular combo is always, those people are just the sickest and they've got uh, so many different symptoms. And, you know, it becomes a thing like it's, it's a one plus one equals three type situation. It's just when these infections are all there at the same time, certain symptoms that are characteristic of maybe two of the infections all of a sudden become much more pronounced. And so we have these red flags like for, for Babesia when somebody comes in complaining of sweats and air hunger and, uh, you know, they, they also have headaches. They flush a lot. They um, have a lightheadedness. Uh, they, you know, uh, some, sometimes even have hip pain. There's anxiety associated with that. You get get sort of a picture. You know, somebody comes in and usually after spending a little time with them and listening to them, you get a really strong feeling like, oh, okay, Babesia is part of the picture here. And so often, you know, the Babesia tests are negative. So, you know, you just want to treat based on the presentation and see where you get, you know, just if nothing happens, then okay, maybe not. But, you know, all, always I, I do a trial treatment for Babesia on everyone because interestingly enough, not everybody has the red flag symptoms. Some people don't have the classic big symptoms, the chest pain, the air hunger, the sweats that we always think of as, as being Babesia symptoms. So I always recommend a trial treatment for everyone who's very sick for Babesia. And then I pretty much do the same thing with Bartonella. You know, we have certain symptoms that we think of as Bartonella, people with a lot of predominant GI or urinary tract uh, kind of sensitivities and uh, frequent infections, irritability, all of that. Uh, people with a lot of eye symptoms, um, people with tremendous anxiety with almost sort of a sudden onset you know, um, the ones that have a lot of very tender glands. I mean, there's there are so many symptoms, but like I say, it's very hard. People are always wanting me to point out, like, is this symptom due to my Bartonella or my Babesia? And you know what? It's hard to say because both Babesia and Bartonella cause anxiety. And so it's hard to know, you know, which one. I mean, I don't know why, but patients do really love to be able to attribute a symptom mm. to a particular infection. <laughs> and, and I just kind of say, it's just, you know, the whole mess, this whole bacterial soup that's in there that's causing just everything to get stirred up. So really what I always tell my patients is what I treat is is inflammation. I treat inflammation really. Okay. But the question is always, where is the inflammation coming from? What's driving the inflammation? And in the case of my patients, the driving force is chronic infection. Now, sometimes I find that, no, that isn't the primary driving force for them. It might be environmental sensitivities. And in that case, we work on that first. But when people have the chronic infections are the source of their inflammation, because inflammation is pretty much causing all the symptoms, then we don't want to do, you know, we don't want to just like put a little bucket of water on the fire. We want to get to the root of the problem and try to get rid of the infection that's creating um, all this inflammation. And what are some of the holistic treatment options available to patients? 
Well, uh, if holistic, by that, do you mean herbal uh, supplements? What kind of exactly? I mean, you know, honestly, I, I've been doing this long enough where I can just tell you antibiotics are really one the thing you just have to use for these infections. I, I even know several naturopathic doctors who are so against antibiotics, but they say that, you know what, this is one case where you really do need them. Uh, I have a, an occasional patient that can be helped significantly with certain herbs, but most of the time I have to use a combination of antibiotics and herbs. I always tell my patients, you know, neither one will do it alone. We have to combine them together. I mean, people do a lot of things to try to help themselves feel better. You know, a lot of different uh, uh, techniques that they may uh, go out and find that can help them feel better. But again, when we're getting down to what the real root of the problem is, the infection, I unfortunately have to say the antibiotics are the thing we have to do. And I'm not a big fan either, Mm -hmm. even though I'm doling them out all day. But I, I, I only do that because that's what I've found we have to do to to get someone better. Thank you. So in Canada and the United States, we have really different healthcare systems. I'm yes, curious, <laughs> so what kind of changes do you think we could make on both sides of the border to improve diagnosis and treatment for people with Lyme disease and co-infections? Right. Well, I, you know, I just think there has to be more education uh, of the doctors or I, when I say doctors, it's kind of a generic term. I mean, every, all of the uh, healthcare providers who with prescriptive authority, that kind of thing, uh, because first of all, they're, they're not including it in their differential and they're not aware that the, the labs are not perfect, you know? And I think this is something that if, if a healthcare provider is going to utilize a lab test, they need to know the sensitivity and specificity of that test. I mean, that should just be a requirement when you use a test. And so if, if they knew that, they would realize that if the Lyme test came back negative, there was a 50% chance that, that the test is wrong. You know, so that, that's part of the education too. And, uh, you know, in the United States, we have a big problem and a certain amount there too, I think, is that I can't treat people the way I want to be able to treat them because they can't afford it. Um, you know, we, we have our insurances here in the United States very often will, will deny certain medications just because they're expensive and the patient can't afford to go out and get them, you know, because we're talking like maybe for one specific antibiotic, thousands of dollars a month. And, you know, they just, they can't afford that. So it always makes me a little angry that my treatment decisions have to be made based on considering economic issues. You know, Mm -hmm. I should be able to treat my patient based on what they need, right? And what's best for them. But that's very, very infrequently. Can, can I do that? And that's, that's a very upsetting thing. And I think that um, I'm not, you know, I have a fair amount of Canadian patients too. And I do think there are quite a a lot of the medications they're not big on giving either just because they're, they're expensive, you know, naturally they don't want, they don't want to give expensive medications, but wouldn't it be a dream come true if you could just go to a doctor and they could just give you the best thing for you and nobody has to even think for a minute about, you know, whether it's covered or you can afford it. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today and sharing your expertise with us. 
Oh, absolutely. I'm very happy to. And uh, yeah, anytime. That was nurse practitioner, Dr. Ginger Savely. I love that she highlighted the important role that nurses and nurse practitioners play in both diagnosing and monitoring patients. Nurses can apply for grants through CanLime to complete the Lyme Fundamentals course through ILADS. That's another episode of CanLime's Looking at Lyme. I'm your host, Sarah Cormode, and remember, stay safe in the outdoors. Mm-hmm.